This episode of the Impact Makers podcast is sponsored by Workplace from Meta. Everybody's talking about the metaverse these days, but Workplace from Meta is different. I mean, the clue's in the name, right? Workplace is a business communication tool that uses features like instant messaging and video calls to help people share information. Think Facebook before your company. It's part of Meta's vision for the future of work, a future in which your job isn't just something you do, but something you experience. A future in which we'll all feel more present, connected, and productive. Start your journey into the future of work at workplace.com forward slash future. Do you want to be a leader who gets noticed, gets things done, and gets real results? Then you need influence and authority. Join host Jennifer McClure to learn how to build authority, expand your influence, and increase your impact. This is the Impact Makers Podcast with Jennifer McClure. Hey there, Impact Makers. These days, every workplace expert and futurist worth their salt is talking about the great resignation, quiet quitting, burnout, and dwindling employee engagement levels. Some are even offering solutions to these problems, including showing more empathy, focusing on improving access to mental health benefits, offering more workplace flexibility, and suggesting increased communication from leadership. But I've not heard anyone suggesting that we can address these issues through introducing more play and fun in the workplace. That is until I met today's guest, Jeff Harry of Rediscover Your Play. Jeff is passionate about making work suck less, and he does this by assisting leaders in building a playground workplace atmosphere that motivates their staff to do their most vibrant work. I met Jeff last year when we both participated in a virtual event together, and then we recently reconnected while speaking at the same conference in Colorado. During my keynote session, it was hard not to notice the big guy out in the audience who was wearing a Lego bow tie and a big smile on his face. I think that the work that Jeff does is unique and impactful, and I'm fascinated by his approach. So I asked if he'd be willing to join me for a chat on the Impact Makers podcast. Thankfully, he enthusiastically said yes, and I think you'll both enjoy our conversation and leave it with some great takeaways. Well, welcome to the Impact Makers podcast, Jeff Harry. I'm so excited to talk with you today. You're bright and pleasant, very early in your time zone. I'm still working on becoming bright in my time zone. So let's see how you can help me out here. Tell me who you are and why you do what you do. Awesome. Uh, so much. Thanks for having me. This is going to be uh, super fun. So I'm Jeff Harry with Rediscover Your Play. And I basically help make work suck less. That's usually what I tell people when they're like, well, what do you actually do? Um, because I take positive psychology and play to like tackle some of the most challenging issues that a lot of companies are currently struggling with. I help make work suck less. Do you have a book, Jeff? I do not yet. No, I do not. You need to reserve that title. Uh, How to make work stuff. Let me jot that down right now. (laughs) Well, I did look back, you know, was kind of uh, researching a little bit about you. We've met we've met uh, online and in person a couple of times briefly, but I wanted to learn a little bit more about you. And I was surprised to see that your degree is actually in mechanical engineering. So I want to start there. How did a mechanical engineer who I think of logical is step by step become the guy who's helping work suck less and talking about play? Great question. So, you know, my Batman origin story all started. No. um, So I saw the movie Big when I was in third grade and, you know, Tom Hanks was playing with toys for a living. And I was like, that's a job. You can do that as a job. I can't believe that. So I started writing toy companies in third grade on my 
mom's word processor. And I just kept writing them for the next 15 years. Any toy company that would get back to me, right? And I eventually got into the toy industry. And I don't know if you've ever gotten exactly what you've always wanted and then been so disappointed when you get there. <laughs> but but the toy industry, there's no toys, no FUD, no high fives, no kids, like just no joy. It was very toxic. And I had to leave my dream industry, my dream job. And then I, I moved from New York to the Bay Area and I bumped into an organization teaching kids engineering with Lego. They basically were playing for a living. And there were only seven people. I found it on Craigslist, paid $150 a week. It was a joke of a job, right? But they were playing. And I was like, this is great. And then we and then I was like, could we make this an actual thing? And together with a group of other nerds, we took it from seven people to 400 people. It became the largest Lego inspired STEM organization in the U.S. You know, we had taught a million kids within the first 10 years, 100,000 kids per year. And we did it all by playing no business plan. We picked cities we thought were fun. We picked people we thought were fun. We didn't hire toxic people. You know, we just had a lot of fun and we made a, so many mistakes, right? Because we're just playing, we're just messing around. But then we got the attention of Silicon Valley, like Facebook, Google, Adobe, because we were based out of there. And they were like, hey, do you do team building events? And we were like, of course we do. No, we did it. We just said yes to whatever. Um, but then I ended up doing team building and special events for the top tech companies in the world. But I realized over the next like decade, as I was doing this, they were toxic as well. They were struggling with having difficult conversations and dealing with that, that one person at work that ruins work for everybody else. So I created rediscover your play, like right before the pandemic as almost like an experiment to explore how do we address issues like toxicity in the workplace, like toxic masculinity, like having difficult conversations, but through the lens of positive psychology and play. Mm -hmm. So right before the pandemic, uh, were you up and running and off to the races before then, or have you had to really figure I, this out? We, I, had, I had collaborated on one workshop, one topic with my uh, friend Gary Ware called Dealing with A-Holes at Work Through Play. And it had been picked up by South by Southwest, which got canceled. Uh, we spoke at Inbound and then we went to Australia to speak. And then the pandemic happened and then we couldn't go anywhere. But like it was starting to get momentum. Um, yeah. So. so how did you do it virtually for a couple of years? Well, it was interesting. I remember running a workshop with the Department of Homeland Security on that when I think specific. of fun, I think of Homeland Security. Yeah, you think so. of you think of some <laughs> Homeland Security, but it was kind of the same idea because I think a lot of it has to do, especially with that workshop, was you're not alone, right? I think a lot of people feel gaslit. I think a lot of people are like, "Am I the only one that thinks Chad is toxic?" Sorry if there's a Chad on this listening to this, but like, am I the only one? And when you finally recognize, like, oh, not only am I not the only one, it's actually costing us more money to keep this person than to address this issue. And let me think of strategies that I can do that I have power and agency to actually take action on. That is empowering because I think a lot of times we just feel like, well, I guess this is just the culture. You know, and I talk to executives all the time and I always ask them this question. What is the worst behavior you are currently tolerating? Because that sets the tone, that sets the culture. And then I ask the flip side of that question. What is the best 
behavior that you're currently not recognizing, the behavior that actually meets your values, right? Because you you know, we both talk to a lot of companies, a lot of employees don't even know their core values of the organization, or they forgot them after orientation, right? Or, the, you know, or they don't even, or even if they know them, they don't even know how to exhibit them on a regular basis. Like, what does that mean for me to show integrity every day? Oh, that means me speaking up when Carol gets cut off at a meeting because Chad has been speaking for the last 80% of the time, right? But like, how do you do that on a regular basis? And those are the conversations I love to, to have. Sure. So how did you make that? You mentioned, you know, that you ended up in a workplace where that was, but how did you decide this is the path I'm going to pursue with play is really helping organizations deal with toxic cultures, uh, you know, teams that don't get along, et cetera. I'm going to introduce play to solve those issues. How did that kind of come about? Because I think when you talk, and I'm sure you have the same experience, when you talk to a lot of employees, they're like, I hate work. And it's just like, wait a minute, you work 2,000 to 2,500 hours a year and you hate it? Like, does it have to, like, do you have to always hate it? Like, I get it. There's certain parts of work that just suck and you're never going to fix those. But if it's so much of your life, especially in America, right, where like one of the first questions we all ask is, what do you do for a living? Who, you know, who do you work for? Right. If it defines who you are, then you should actually enjoy some of it. So especially during the pandemic and, you know, as we're kind of leaving it a little bit, I realized a lot of places, a lot of workplaces haven't healed. They haven't had those conversations. They haven't even asked the question, which I tell a lot of middle managers, like, did we gain your trust or did we lose your trust during the pandemic? Has that conversation even happened? Have you even acknowledged what happened during the pandemic? The amount of people that were lost, right? The amount of families that that went through such hardships and we just continued like nothing, like nothing happened. Like that's a, it's, it's a once in a lifetime century pandemic. And we haven't even mourned that. We haven't even mourned what we lost from the past. Right. And we're trying to rush to the next thing. And it's just like, why are we always rushing? Like, what are we rushing to? Right. We have to get back. We got to get everyone back into the office. Why? Like, have you even answered why you have to get people back to the office? What if they were, a lot of times they were more productive at home. What does that say about you? Or what does that say about your middle management that it's not now not able to micromanage people? Do you just want to get them back to the office because you have nothing to do? Like we have to be asking harder questions of like, what are we doing? Why are we spending so much time at work? And it's not a place that people want to go to. We can fix this. We're smart enough to fix this. All right, Jeff, help us fix this. I know as an HR leader for many years in charge of team building, you know, exercises and not having the resource of someone like yourself, I probably created a lot of what I would say people call forced fun. And I I like to think of, and this is dating me a little bit, so somebody maybe can look it up on the internet, but um, there was a television show called Murphy Brown with Candace Bergen way back when. And she was kind of a hard charger in, I believe, a newsroom. And I just remember one of the episodes where they went to a team building exercise and it was a a ropes course kind of planks thing. And the worst of everybody came out in that team (laughs) because their true personalities shine. You know, the competitive ones got competitive and uh, she was like, you know, pushing people off of the boards and stuff. And 
I remember some team building exercises of my own that, <laughs> that were similar to that. So how do we, what's the difference between force fun and introducing play into the workplace? Great question. So I hate forced fun. I did force fun. I used to run team building events. And if you put Chad in a room with Daphne, as you said, they're, they hate each other. They're not going to change, hate each other. Now they're just stuck in a place together now hating each other. So it's like, okay, this is not helpful. So I am not about forced fun because what makes play awesome is it's a choice. Like if you think about the playground, when you used to go to the playground, you got to choose what you would play and do, or you could just choose to just sit on the sidelines. Like you don't have to play, but when you're like, everyone has to play and everyone has to have fun. And if you think about like any parent that goes to the playground and goes, Hey kids, are you having fun? It just ruins the fun. It just ruins people, the kid being present. Right. And even even how they're doing it, because it's almost like they're coming into the playground and saying to kids like, did you win playground today? You're like, what are you talking about? Win playground. Like, I don't even understand. Like, it's so results oriented. We're going to have fun and then everyone's going to get together. And that's just not realistic. What I say when I say in incorporating play into the workplace is how have you identified your staff's zone of genius? What is the work where they forget about time? What is the work that they would do even if they weren't getting paid to do that work? How do you cultivate more of that type of work? Because that is your staff's flow work. And then when people are like, well, I don't have time for that. Well, I mean, let's look at the success stories of that, right? Google did that 20% rule a while back where they would give their staff a fifth of their time to do whatever they wanted as long as it helped Google. What came from the Google 20% rule? Gmail, AdSense, Google News, Google Earth, like like foundations of Google came from providing a playground where people could follow their curiosity as long as it helped out the organization. Now, I talk to a lot of companies that are like, I don't have the budget at Google. I can't just let my staff do whatever they want. Fine. But can you give them an extra hour where they can pursue things that they're interest, interest them? Can you give them 5% more time, some freedom, some autonomy to address an issue, not in the standard way, but in a more unique way? And what happens when you do that? People feel empowered, they feel seen, they feel heard, they feel appreciated, and they start being more engaged at work and start actually having slightly more fun at work, but in their own way. Mm -hmm. Well, how do you help leaders and people understand how to do that. You know, I, I've joked with some of my friends that I think, you know, when I travel and I stay in a nice hotel or something, I always think the same thing. And it's sad. I'd like to schedule a few days here in this nice hotel where I could be quote on vacation and just work on getting caught up on email. <laughs> I'm like, how sad is that? That I think I want to go away and cocoon to catch up on work. So I can imagine if I were in the workplace and you said, I'm going to give you 20% of your time, Jennifer, each week or an hour each week to work outside the norm, that I would be someone who would say, I'm going to use that to catch up on work. So how do you give them guidelines to have fun? So I challenge people to get bored. And that is very difficult for adults to do. But that's where all of the unique, innovative answers that actually set the tone that created the Googles, the TikToks, the Hulus, it comes from that bored state. And if you think about it, like, when was the last time you got bored? And what do I mean by that? When I say bored, I mean 
Stop looking at email. Stop looking at social media. Stop doom scrolling. Stop binge watching Netflix. And I'm not saying forever. I'm talking about can you do it for 10 minutes? Can you do it for 30 minutes? Like, let's just see what happens when you are not being inundated with information because we get more information in a day now that people in the 1800s got in their entire lifetime. Like if you just think about the amount of information, so no wonder we can't hear ourselves, right? No wonder we can't get into flow and understand like, oh, what's the new, what's the latest, coolest thing that I can create? Because I can't hear myself right now. So I challenge people to do this. I, I, I walk them through this process of like, first, you need to calm yourself down. You can't play when you're in an anxiety-ridden state. You can't play when you're angry. You can't play when you're sad. So what soothes you? Is it going for a walk? Is it taking a shower? Is it dancing? in your house in a costume, like whatever, like no judgment do you, right? But what actually soothes you and then allow yourself to get bored the way you got bored as a kid. And then when you get bored and let's say you're just going on a walk or whatever it is, but you're not being inundated by inf information or not looking at information, then just see what ideas start to come up, right? And you'll start to hear things like absurd things like what you just did. I'm going to create a podcast. I'm going to create a podcast in 2018 all about impact. Like, why would you do that? There's no ROI. That doesn't make any sense. What's the purpose? There is no purpose. I just want to do it because it's really cool and fun. I'm going to go email that person. I've always wanted to email. Well, what if they say no? Who cares? It doesn't really matter. It's just this idea of like you taking a risk and following something that is your own intuition. And when you follow that, what happens is something really cool. All of a sudden you dive into the pool of uncertainty and you realize what fear actually is, right? It's just false evidence appearing real, right? And you were like, oh, this is not that scary. I can do other fear things that I was once scared about. And you start to expand what is possible. And that's where all the innovation comes from. That's where all the creativity comes from. So it, it frustrates me when I'm talking to executives and they're like, yeah, we need to think outside the box. Okay, well, how did you think outside the box? Well, we got everyone inside our company office, which is a box. And then we had them go into the room, which also is a box. And then we sat around a table. That's a box. And then we gave them an hour to come up with the greatest ideas outside of the box. Like, seriously? Like, really? Like, I like how the go, executives sound in your world. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, this is what we did. This is how we do it. It's great. I, I was I was just I was in Texarkana talking to a bunch of Sherm executives and I was just like, go get some ice cream. That should be the start of your meeting. You just go walk and get some ice cream, like just something that breaks the mold of what you've been doing that has been making your meeting so boring. Right. Or whatever that is. But challenge the status quo, because clearly it's not working for a majority of people. If we have such high disengagement, such high absenteeism, and then as you said in Colorado, such like movement around like anti-work or quiet quitting, because people are just like, I felt exploited the entire time during the pandemic. And now you want me to give more than I should instead of just doing the bare minimum? You do the bare minimum for me. So why would I do that back to you? So only when you allow people to actually play and allow them to actually do the work that makes them come alive, right? Their zone of genius work. That's when all of a sudden you get them reengaged.
in a real way. Well, you've hit on one of the, you know, the phrases affecting the workplace today, quiet quitting. How do we address quiet quitting through play? You address it by having hard conversations, right? Like, you, wait a minute, you that doesn't actually, sound fun. <laughs> it's, it's, but this is plays not always going to be like happy and go lucky. It's experimental. Like, what is play, right? Play is based off of um, experimentation, a sense of awe, following your curiosity, following your intuition. It's not always fun. Like running a marathon is not always a fun, but if you ask a runner, there's times when you get that runner's high and you're like, oh, this is amazing. What take? What is taking, creating such burnout and a lack of psychological safety at work is perfection. And what is perfection rooted on, rooted in ego, shame, constantly trying to be right, constantly worried about making mistakes, right? That's what's so exhausting. But when you come from a play perspective and you're like, hey, I'm going to have a hard conversation and I don't know how it's going to go, but I'm open to having it and being like, listen, I realize you're more disengaged at work right now. Tell me what's up. What's happening with you? Is it something in your something, you know, in your personal life? Is there something I'm doing? Is there something that the company is doing? Is there some way in which we broke your trust way back like in March of 2020? Like let's have a real conversation about that and let me see if I can help. And maybe I can't, but at least we're going to be open to having this conversation where I'm not trying to fix it, where I'm not trying to like gaslight you. I'm not trying to like say that your issues aren't real issues, but I'm just here to actively listen. And I don't think a lot of leaders actively listen and are really paying attention to what their employees need. Sure. Well, if I'm the leader and the leaders listening to us chat today, I'm probably burnt out and maybe quiet quitting as well. So maybe the HR leaders coming to me or the CEO saying, hey, we need to introduce more fun and play at work and help people experiment. So go do that with your team. That How's that going to work? And, and how do we help that leader to actually be the one that is setting the example? Yeah. So again, it's not forcing the person when they're not there. Like you shouldn't infuse fun when you haven't built psychological safety, right? If you haven't had hard conversations with your staff, just walking in and being like, all right, everybody, let's go bowling. You know, like it's just not, it's, it's, it comes off as inauthentic. So if I'm burning out as a leader, then I need to be talking to my HR team as well as my boss and being like, I need time, right? Everyone needs more time right now. I was just in Colorado, you know, we both were at the Sherm conference, right? And someone brought up the fact that she was just like, listen, I would love to talk to my staff. I would love to build a relationship with my staff. But right now, two people have quit. So I'm doing the job of two other people as a way to show my staff that I have their back. So I get it. Like right now, people don't have time. So how can your boss help you get more time or how can you look at your own schedule and be like, what is a good use of my time and what is it? How many meetings am I a part of that aren't necessary? How many meetings are we running that are not necessary right now? Because right, because we're not actually addressing anything pertinent in this in this moment, right? And then once you have time and once you're able to give your staff some time, that is when you can actually start to help. The other thing I would also recognize or help them with is how much time are you 
recognizing your staff as well as recognizing you. Like, do you understand your staff's languages of appreciation? Have you communicated to them recently how they are doing a good job? Because a lot of times we only reach out to our staff when we're trying to point out what they're doing wrong. But all the studies show in positive psychology that more recognition of what they're doing right actually helps. And you giving words of affirmation to someone in front of other people so that maybe they may be able to move on to another department in the future is really powerful to them because then they're like, oh my gosh, you have my back and you're not just doing stuff to get something out of me because a lot of employees right now feel used and whatever you can do to communicate that like, I actually see you and care for you as a human being outside of your, the transactional process that you provide me, the more they actually start to show up. So I think before we can infuse fun or play, we should simply be like, how are you being more human at work right now, right? How are you bringing shared humanity, compassion, and empathy back to work? You've mentioned psychological safety a few times in um, a few podcasts ago. My guest, Desiree Pasquale from Headspace, talked about the importance of psychological safety when addressing mental health issues and burnout. So that's a new topic, I'm sure, for a lot of leaders, although Google you know, did some research a few years ago that psychological safety was the magic on teams. And even then, I think people are like, OK, well, how do I create that? You know, what are some steps that we need to take in the workplace to ensure that we have an environment where there is psychological safety and, and maybe even start with what psychological safety is? Yeah. So psych, the, at least the way I define psychological safety is my ability to be able to share with my colleagues and with my boss in a real way, right? How many of those, the reason meetings suck, right? And I'm telling people more and more of this all the time. Stop having nice meetings. Nice meetings are boring. Nice meetings are a waste of time. And what I mean by nice, the acronym, nothing important can emerge at a nice meeting. It just can't. It's just so boring, right? Start having kind meetings, right? And kind being like, like let's have real conversation. So I would challenge executives first and foremost, what are the conversations I'm currently avoiding, right? I would ask that right from the beginning. Then I would also ask, again, going back to the question earlier, what is the worst behavior I'm currently tolerating? If I'm letting Chad run amok and do whatever he wants, and he's being rude and mean to everyone, but he's like, you know, he brings in a lot of money. So that's why we keep him, you know, but he's able to just be mean to everybody. I'm setting the tone in the culture, right? So then I have to ask a harder question. Is it actually worth it for me to keep Chad? Chad brings in a million dollars a year. But if I look at the exit interviews and realize why people quit, he got seven people to quit last year. How much did that actually cost me? It might cost me more money to actually keep this person. So really trying to address the hardest questions that your team is currently avoiding is crucial because what's happening is all of your team already knows what the problems are but they see that you're not addressing them. So then they're like, there's no safety. This person doesn't want to actually want to talk about this. The person would actually just want to go through the motions and be like, let's have another meeting that wastes both of our time for an hour a day. And then we'll get back to our work instead of being like, do we even need this meeting? Right? Like Brene Brown and Priya Patel talked about that, like in the art of the gathering. Why are you even having the meeting? What's the purpose of the meeting? What was the goal? Have you re gone back to that? Because again, 
if you want to show a certain level of psychological safety, give your staff time, stop wasting their time and actually have real create a space where they can have real conversation and confront you about stuff. Right. What if what if an executive simply went up to their staff and was just like, what have I not been doing? How have I not been supporting you that I can support you in a better way? Like, let's have those hard conversations instead of tiptoeing around it and pretending everything's good because no one is saying anything. Because I say it all the time, toxicity thrives in silence, right? It thrives in silence because then no one else is saying anything. So I can just be a bully to everybody. And everyone's just like, well, I guess that's the culture. Is that the tone you want to set? with your staff. So when you're talking about, you know, psychological safety and the ability to have difficult conversations, I think it's easier to recognize that the difficult conversation might be about Chad, who's very hard to work with, and we're letting him run amok. What are your thoughts about the difficult conversations around societal issues that are affecting the workplace? I know engagement numbers went up at the beginning of the pandemic, and they actually went down in the fall. And a lot of it was attributed to the social justice issues that were out there, you know, following George Floyd's murder and the political climate and the fact that managers didn't know how to address those conversations or in in many cases for forbid those conversations in the workplace for people to be able to talk about how they felt about those issues or how it was impacting their life or work. What are your thoughts yeah. on that? Well, I, I think depending on the organization, you have to decide what you're going to do, right? You're going to have to like make a stand. And I think a lot of companies are just like, well, I'll just skate in the middle and not address this. No, let's actually have conversation around. Can we talk about politics in the workforce? I know there was this one company in San Francisco was like, no politics, no conversation about it at all. Well, is that helpful? You know, then people still now we're trying to be nice and not really address what's going on in the room. Right. Instead of having just an open dialogue on like, should we even be talking about this? And is this effective or is this not effective? Because this, you know, politics sometimes is personal. Right. And politics sometimes attaches to people's values, which is a bigger question. Right. That you actually have to have. You know, I know there's an organization right now called Braver Angels that takes people on the right and the left and a balanced panel, right, where they both have conversations and they have it through a certain process or dialogue. If you created that opportunity for people to do that separate from work, but still a possibility for people to connect and try to find understanding, that might be interesting. Or you can, but again, all of this is going to be messy. All of this is going to be experimental. And I think a lot of times we're like, well, how do I just do something where there's not going to be any mess? How do I do something where it's just going to be perfect as soon as I run it? And you know the answer to this. <laughs> like, you know it. I and don't. Like, Help me, Jeff. How, what's the, the answer, answer <laughs> is that there is no perfect answer. Stop looking for the, I don't even know why they call it a magic bullet because that's a horrible, violent thing to even say. It's a magic bullet that that hits somebody and then they <laughs> They become amazing. They die. <laughs> they die. That's really what happens. If you're looking for a magic bullet, the culture dies, right? Instead of just being like, I don't know the answer. I wish executives were like, I don't know the answer more. They would admit it. Let's figure it out together, right? That's what I really respected about Tony Shea at Zappos, right? Like he didn't know, but all he all he knew was just like, if I create a safe 
enjoyable, fun place where my staff feels seen, heard, and appreciated, and I take care of them, they'll take care of the customers. And that worked. That worked. But then you have other organizations, and I just heard this recently in Colorado for someone that used to work for Amazon. Well, actually, she used to work for Whole Foods, right? She was HR for Whole Foods. And remember, Whole Foods, you know, they talked about work culture and how much they cared about their staff and everything. And then Amazon bought it. And then Amazon removed all the HR staff from the store. So there was no one to to handle disputes. There was no one to handle hiring. There was no one to handle like all of the fires that happened in the store. You had to call an HR number, right? Or you have to go to you have to go to your manager who's already busy like stocking shelves or doing something. You know, they took the humanity out of the workforce, right? And if we want to, like, I really believe we're at a crossroads right now, where do we want to go to the antiquated old boys club of the past that's built off of toxicity, right? And built off of individualism. Are we finally ready to go to a future that's built off of like healthy masculine and divine feminine leadership, right? That's about collaboration and intuition and also competition and, and both and being able to ha- manage both. But you have to bring more shared humanity, compassion, and empathy back to work in order to do that. And that's the choice every HR staff, every executive has with each and every decision they make on a, on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Well, but again, talking about the toxic people, how do you address that through play? The toxic so, person or people in the environment. So part of that is exper- part of that is experimentation. Like, so I go through various steps, right? So I'm like, hey, okay, what is the issue? Chad is taking up 80% of the of the meeting. Okay, listen up. Jennifer, Jeff, Daphne, you know, what we're gonna do when he cuts you off, I'm gonna get your back and be like, whoa, we need to hear from Jennifer. Jennifer is the most knowledgeable person in the room about this issue. I think we need to hear from her, right? And the more we get each other's back over the next three months, we start to occupy the meeting back up. That's one way to address it. Also, you could confront Chad. You could go right up to him and be like, hey, you know, what is the goal of our meetings, right? You don't attack, you don't attack their character, right? You address their behavior and the impact that it's having. And you go into that conversation, not trying to win, right? But trying to understand, trying to find some common ground. But you go, Chad, what is the goal of our meeting? Oh, is the goal of our meeting to get the most ideas? Well, right now, when you cut off Jennifer and myself, we don't feel like sharing. Like, is that your is that your goal? Right. And then if they're like, whatever, I'm going to do whatever I want. That's when you're going to the HR. That's when you're going to their boss and you're like, does this person actually communicate the values of the organization? Right. Does this person actually achieve the goals of the organization? I remember when I had to get rid of toxic person, I went up to our boss and I was like, what are the goals of our organization to make money? This person's not making money. What are the values of our organization? Curiosity, psychological safety, having fun. This person's sucking all the life out of that. What's What specifically is your primary motivation? Oh, you want a higher bonus? Well, guess what? As long as this person is here, you're not going to get it, right? And when you're approaching it from a systematic way instead of just a complaining way, and you start to even document it, like having these journals of like, these are all the things this person has done. And this is how it's affecting productivity, because I believe you lose 
$14,000 per employee for every three months if you have a toxic person on your team, right? So if you have five people on your team, you're losing $70,000 just right there off the bat. If you have a toxic person, every time someone leaves, it costs six to nine months of someone's salary to replace them. So you're paying $100,000 to a staffer, that's fifty dollars to $75,000. Are you okay with that? And then we're not even talking about the lawsuits, the lawsuits, oh my goodness, right? The discovery alone could cost you $75,000 to $150,000. Like, like, look it up yourself. Like, we're not even talking about the settlement, the settlements. So like when you add up all those numbers, you're like, is it really worth it to keep this person? Like, let's have a real honest conversation about this, right? But constantly being able to experiment and try out new things, that's the embracing the play. It's the play-oriented mindset of like, I don't know how we're going to solve this, but we need to address this at each and every moment because we just can't tolerate this type of behavior anymore in, in, the, in our workplace. It's not helping. It's actually causing us to hemorrhage money. Mm -hmm. Tell me about, uh, I'm sure you have a story, at least one of a situation with a client where you went in, you're bringing in your bag of tools and ready to talk about psychological safety and play in the workplace. And they've all got their arms crossed and nobody's buying it. Um, tell me about a success story where you've been able to bring those people around and maybe some of the results that came from that. Well, so uh, so I'll share. So this was interesting. As I'm doing one, maybe this other one might pop up. But I remember once running a workshop for people. And this was at another organization when I used to play with Lego a lot. Um, and I remember running a team building event. And I remember we were at a winery with like this tech, a biomedical tech company. And we were all doing some building together. And at one point, the leader of the team, he might have, I don't know if he was the CEO, but he was just like, you know, the top executive there, shooed everybody away and was just like, I got it. I'm going to build with this Lego. You know, I can figure it out and just pushed 20 people away. And mind you, they have wine, right? So wine is just like flowing. So they're like, fine, I'm just going to go drink wine. So then after we we just analyzed it and we're just like, what happened? And he goes, well, I'm an expert at Lego. So I felt I needed to step up. And then we were just like, that is the problem. That is the problem in the, right there. Like, can we just have that discussion? Because I think a lot of times, executives don't realize what they're doing. I remember there was a study done by Harkness.ai. They, they were doing some AI study. They were asked by a CEO to have the meetings analyzed from an artificial intelligence standpoint because the CEO didn't understand why the meetings were so bad. Well, AI found out, and frankly, you could have found this out anyway, but AI found out he was talking 75% of the time. And when he was speaking, he would only acknowledge the men. He acknowledged the men like a majority of the time, barely acknowledged the women. And there was one woman of color in the room, never acknowledged her, not once. So then over a five-week span, he started to change his attitude based off of the AI results and found that when he spoke less, engagement went up 50% or at least happiness with engagement went up 50% by everybody, 600% higher engagement by women. And the woman of color, the one woman of color, the black woman in the room, 
went up by 1600%. And they went from 22 ideas to 48 ideas over the span of a five week period. So like there are tangible, and I use that example instead of just like, let me just tell you the story because it's data, right? And like, and executives need data, but this is like, did he really need that AI in order to do that? No, I don't think he did. But when I've done that with executives and done that just with teams where we have hard conversations, my measurement of success is I come back to them three, four weeks later and be like, did you have that specific conversation, right? When I'm sitting in a room with like hotel executives and I'm like, what is the challenge that that is most getting in the way of you're doing your most vibrant work. All of us write those down and that's different for different like hotels. Right. And then I'm coming back to them and being like, where are we at? Right. Oh, did you actually hire an extra person to give that person time? Great. Oh, did you actually take some of the work off that person's plate because they were so stressed out? Awesome. Oh, are you still avoiding having that conversation about that toxic person? Okay, we got to work on that. Why is that getting in your way? Those are examples of the, the ways in which I'm like, all right, we're slowly making progress, but we have to understand it's it's always three steps forward, two steps back. It's always messy. It's always like, it's not, it's not going to be clean. And I think a lot of times we are just waiting for someone to just save the day with like a perfect word or a perfect conversation. It's just like, that's just not the reality. You know, if you haven't had a conversation with your staff for the last six months, and then all of a sudden you're like, we're going to have a real good talk today. That's so much pressure on this one talk. Like, goodness, dude, I'm stressed out. Just, you know, what? instead be like, okay, over the next six months, we're going to start to have converse, real conversations where I'm going to try to be more vulnerable and share what I know and what I don't know. And we'll see where we go. Hard out there to be a leader today. It is hard. It's <laughs> real. Continuously evolve. One of the things that you have, again, taking a look at your website and, and some of the things that you've written and done is a positive psychology play method. Tell me more about this method. What's involved? So positive psychology um, was founded by Marty Seligman back in the 1980s. And what he had found about it was he's a psychologist and he had realized that up until the 80s, psychology had only studied what's wrong with people. <laughs> and rarely had they ever studied what's right with people. And what he found is when you double down on what's what with what's right with people, you actually bring more happiness, you cultivate more curiosity, you cultivate more flow, all these different aspects, you build stronger relationships. So a positive psychology method is really using a lot of specific types of engagement methods to enjoy to have staff become more productive. So for a perfect example, right, is savoring right? Savoring is a positive psychology method. Like there's even studies that found that if you watch enough sunsets, you actually slow time down in your mind because you start to appreciate it more. You actually notice this when you're on vacation and you slow down, right? You're like, you're taking much more deep breaths when you're on vacation. Heck, just simply taking a deep breath from time to time actually really helps your nervous system. But the, the idea of savoring was just like, okay, how are we? So a way in which you could apply at work is how are we celebrating 
What are we doing to acknowledge people? And are we rushing to the next thing or are we literally sitting and enjoying the fact that we just got this new client or we just ran this really amazing, you know, workshop or an event or we just finished the quarter and we actually were successful. The problem with a lot of companies is we're always rushing to the next thing. We're constantly rushing like, okay, that was great. Let's have one happy hour and then move on. No, let's actually enjoy this. Let's actually communicate to each other how we appreciated one another during this time, during the challenging times as we're putting together this really hard event, right? Or that time where we actually didn't think we were going to make our numbers, right? And let's actually savor and appreciate one another because just doing that more and slowing down actually would help your retention and help your productivity because what do people want to feel? They want to feel seen, heard, and appreciated, right? So how are we doing that? There's many methods like this that you can easily do in the workplace, right? The the whole languages of appreciation thing, all these different steps to actually say to your staff, hey, I value you. Wow, what a concept. <laughs> like, you know, and and I think we've forgotten that. We are in such a rush all the time to meet some arbitrary metrics that it's just like, well, I even ask this to a lot of leaders now. What is the metric you should be focused on right now? Are you just trying to meet your quarterly profits or are you caring about sustainability? Are you thinking about retention over the next five years? Where's this organization going to be in five years? If you look at a lot of Japanese companies, they've been around sometimes 50 to 100 years. So when they think about how they analyze a decision, they make decisions thinking long term. They're thinking 10, 15 years down the road, right? Maybe even longer. Native Americans used to do that where they, they would think 10, seven generations before and seven generations after. What would those generations make in decisions that actually move us forward? We have to be thinking more like that if we care more about the longevity of our organization, or are we just trying to get the quick fix, just the next bonus, the next quarterly result, because that's what is causing also the burnout. We're moving way too fast and we're not spending enough time acknowledging our staff and their humanity. But do you see the challenge that leaders face when they are bonus? And if they're a public company, you know, Wall Street pays attention to those quarterly results. It doesn't really reward the long-term thinking. I mean, it doesn't really reward the long-term thinking in the short term, but like an organization that lasts that was able to last during the pandemic while other companies were going out of business. I mean, that's what we have to ask ourselves, right? Blockbuster was all about the short term and look where they resulted. Sears was all about the short term. So Toys R Us, same thing, right? I used to work for them. Ugh. You know, like, and I would warn them about not treating their staff with respect. And they were like, ah, I don't care. Who cares about that? We're Toys R Us. We're going to be here forever, right? Guess what? You're not. Right. And I say this all the time to executives, the future. This is Stephen Johnson's quote, which I was introduced by my play mentor, Kevin Carroll. But the future is where you'll find the future where people are having the most fun. Right. And if you think about 
who are the most innovative organizations who are taking the most risks right that's why tiktok was thriving that's why at one point netflix was thriving during the pandemic they were willing to take risks other organizations were not right and the and the organizations that are not willing to infuse fun right not willing to create an engaging environment where people feel that their time is not being wasted and that that they're able to do their most vibrant work those are the organizations that are going to be around, right? The ones that are are brave enough to be like, I don't know what's next, but I'm willing to try it out, right? Perfect example with uh, Buffalo Bills. The Buffalo Bills, decent football team, great. Hired these kids to be like, listen, during the pandemic, we don't know what this TikTok thing is. We're going to give you a whole floor and a budget and do whatever you want with it. They became the most well-known NFL team with people in the Gen Z age that had not, no idea what football was, right? They all of a sudden were just like, we just love the Buffalo Bills. Same thing happened with the Washington Post. There was this one guy that would make really cool videos for the Washington Post. All of a sudden, these Gen Zers knew about him and being like, this is a kind of cool paper. Wait, the Washington Post is a cool paper. So like when you're willing to take experimental risks and, and try things out, that's where so much of the new revenue is going to come from. So when you're getting all that pressure, you know, to be like, we got to hit our quarterly profits. You have to be able to push back and be like, we're thinking about something bigger than this, than just like me meeting the fourth quarter expectations. And maybe we're going to lose some money for a couple of quarters because we're trying to build something bigger than that. And that's what we have to be talking. That's where that's where you have to push back on that. OK, well, now we're getting into the personal therapy point of our conversation. Yes, let's do it. <laughs> I want to oh learn how to have more fun. Wait, at do work. I need to sit down? Maybe I need to lay down. <laughs> no, we both should sit me. on a couch. <laughs> uh, one of the questions on your website is what drove you back when you were a kid can really ask answer questions like how do you want to show up in the world? I'd have to think about that, but tell me a little bit more about that. That so question. I I do a workshop called Your Future is Where Your Fun Is with a, a colleague of mine, Lauren Yee, a cultivator of curiosity. She's amazing. And what we do is we actually have people reflect on what they love to do as a kid, right? And when you reflect on what you love to do as a kid, then you are like, well, actually, let's just do it, right? So what did you love to do as a kid? See, that's I'd have to like what is your that. favorite way to play <laughs> as a kid if you can think about it? And if you can't think of something, and this is for anyone also listening, try this out as well. If you can't think of something you played as a kid because maybe you didn't play a lot as a kid, then what is some way in which you played recently that you just love? Sure. Well, I lived in the middle of nowhere. Um, so I played and I love horses and lived on a farm. So the play that I can remember doing as a kid was with, you know little farm sets or horse sets or I forget her name, Jane and John, and she had the golden Palomino, you know? So yes, Jane so, and John are the golden Palomino. <laughs> I love it. I love so it. I was living out my horse girl dreams, you know, as a kid with, you know, both toys and, and real life horses. And I would, that's what I think of when I think of play. I love it. So, so then what we do then is we go, okay, let's identify the play values of that. Why did you love to play in that way? Like, was it the creativity? Was it the connection? Was it the community? Was it like the imagination? Like what were the, the aspects of that type of play that you loved? I think it was, you know, the, the connection to horses, 
because they made me happy and doing things to spend more time with them, to to grow that friendship or partnership was really important to me. So connection, friendship, anything else? Partnership. Thank you. Yeah. Partners, it was connection, friendship, and partnership. Interesting, right? So then what we would have you do in the workshop is then we'd, we'd ask the group, right? You'd be like potentially up on stage with me, or we would do it in, in individual groups and be like, okay, Jennifer loves connection, friendship, and partnership. Now, what's one way in which you love to play? Uh, what's one way in which you love to work now? Me? Like when you, yeah, when <laughs> I you're work doing- work by myself. That's oh, you work by yourself. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's probably why it's sometimes challenging because I'm self-employed and I have two businesses and both of them are just me, you know, so I get that connection in the past. It's it's changed a lot for, I think, all of us. But my best friends are people that I met through social media, through Twitter, through blogging, other speakers at conferences and events. So people who don't necessarily live in my town, but I I found a way to create that connection in my career and not necessarily in the workplace once I became self-employed. So so then what we then would give you suggestions on and what's cool is you do it in the group of a large amount of people, right, is they just start throwing ideas of new ways in which you can cultivate more connection, partnership and friendship in your asset. So so here, do you have a piece of paper? Because I'm just going to start throwing ideas out at you and we're just going to see what sticks. Right. OK, so, well, first off, I mean, we haven't. You mentioned earlier your connection to horses, right? When was the last time you were on a horse, right? And when was the last time you maybe did that with your friends, like a meeting where you just hang out and just hang out and have that? Another way I would do it is I would I would get all of your friends together and be and tell them this, like all of your all of your work friends. You could even do this via Zoom and be like, okay, I want to cultivate more connection, partnership, and friendship with people. Give me all of the ideas that you have. You could even ask this of them. Oh, I love doing this as a coach. You could ask them, okay, why are we friends? Like, what value do I give to you? Like, like, what do I do for you, right? And then the second question I would ask you is, when have you seen me most alive? When have you seen me most playful, most creative, most myself? So those two questions, when have you seen me most alive and what value do I bring to your life and then have them brainstorm with you based off of those play ideas, new ways in which you could play. Right. Also, then I would think about, OK, you you're always going around speaking. Right. How do we actually cultivate community during it? So it's not just you up on stage and you speak and then you high five some people and you go on your way. But what what fun thing can we do as a community that makes you feel appreciated when you're not always on stage. And I get it that you're an introvert, so you don't want everyone around you. But what is something that actually would be fun as a community that you can do with people that you care about, right? Or, you know, I haven't seen a lot of my friends because they're all virtual. What if we could all just have a retreat and we all get together and just nerd out for like a weekend, right? So I would be just, and these are just the ideas we'd throw out. And then you'd write all these ideas down. And then whatever idea most resonated with you, we we would challenge you to circle that idea and then we would tell you to text a friend that's going to help you actualize that idea. And that's how we would actually do it. Yeah. And I love the question that you asked, you know, you could have your friends ask you when are when do you 
or when you, you could ask your friends, when did you see me when I felt most alive? Or I remember when I was in thinking about starting my own business and kind of really suffering through that decision of what do I want to do with my life and what's next? And I was talking with a friend who I can still picture. We were in an elevator in the office building. He was an executive coach. And so he asked a great coaching question and he said, Jennifer, when was the last time you felt you were at your best, you were in the flow, you were in the zone. And he said, when, when does that happen? And I said, when I'm on a stage and it's Q and a time. And so I think that answer for me was really revealing that I, I needed to pursue the speaking career because at the time I was an executive recruiter who was doing kind of speaking on the side, that if that's where I feel that I'm really in my zone of genius, that I need to pursue that because that to me is fun. So then I would even challenge you next keynote, 10 minute keynote, 50 minutes of Q&A, like, like, let's, let's create it, right? Like, if that is something that cultivates for you, I even think of, do, do you know, equine, I think it's equine therapy. Have you ever heard of mm -hmm. that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like the next time you're trying to figure out like your next book idea or the next thing you're really struggling with. Go hang out with some horses, maybe go with your friends if that feels and just sit with the horse in silence. And I guarantee you that horse is going to help you come up with your next idea. It sounds absurd, but it actually is very soothing. Like horses actually really do communicate with you in many ways and actually can calm your nervous system down so that you can actually get bored and start hearing those ideas again. Right. And this is what we're trying to cultivate. Right. In a fun way. Right. I actually, I have two horses of my own. And so that did resonate with me earlier when you said getting bored. And I'm like, well, okay, I'm thinking about when I'm most thoughtful is when I am maybe riding one of my horses by myself out in the field, but I need to focus on getting bored and letting the horse talk to me, maybe. <laughs> yeah, just hang out, just just walk with it, right? And just ask them some questions, which seems absurd, but it's just like, it's as absurd as asking yourself some questions, right? Ask them some questions to just see what comes back, you know? And I think, I think a lot of times we don't tap into that curiosity and that intuition that we had is in our childlike state, right? And so many of our answers come from our inner child, but we don't give it enough attention. And our inner child is constantly wanting to play. And if you think of the most innovative ideas that have ever, that have changed the lives of all of us, they came from a place of play. And I always share the story of, of the Wright brothers versus Andrew Langley. A lot of people don't realize that at the same time, the Wright brothers in their bike mechanic shop in whatever, I think it was Ohio, making their airplanes, the Andrew Langley was being funded by, I think it was the Smithsonian and a bunch and had so many scientists and so many engineers had all the resources. I think they were backed by a million dollars back then, which is like I can't even imagine how much money that is now. That's like probably 75 million to more. And because they were so focused on the result of like, we have to make this flying machine and, you know, and there was so much pressure and it was like that same idea of like quarterly results. Where are you at? It was so stressed out that these scientists as well as Andrew Langley were not able to figure it out. Meanwhile, these two weird bike mechanics with like their community that actually at first laughed at them, but, but they would come back out and watch them every day. 
because they played and they cared about just making it for the sake of making it because it was so much fun to pursue this idea just to see if they could figure it out. That's how they achieved success. So I challenge people all the time and I challenge executives all the time. How are you cultivating the next great idea? Are you creating a playground for people to play so they can find that? Or are you, are you creating a fear-based driven culture in order to get that idea because that next idea is going to suck and you can see it just simply with like movies whenever you see movies go for the money grab always the worst movie always the worst movie so but when you follow your curiosity you get things that you never thought would were possible hmm. Well, I could talk to you all day. Plus, you're like energetic and positive. So you're hey, smiling. My face hurts from smiling. <laughs> um, but leave us with this. One of the articles that when I, again, kind of researching you was a New York Times article where you're featured. Uh, the title was How to Add More Play to Your Grown-Up Life. And because I've used all my free articles in the New York Times, I couldn't read it. <laughs> Because I'm cheap. Um, hey, I hear you. Me. I hear I you. I want to know the answer. I want to know the answer. How do I add more play to my grown-up life, Jeff? You have to give yourself time. You have to slow down. We have to do all the things that are against the natural order of capitalism, right? Right, Where it's like constant and fast-paced. And you have to slow down. You have to get bored. You have to follow your curiosity. You have to do things that you haven't done since you were a kid, right? And you have to let go of judgment. Expectations are the thief of joy. Right. And we are constantly as adults, constantly striving for the next thing as if that next thing is going to bring us happiness. And if Michael Phelps didn't teach you after getting 23 Olympic gold medals and going into depression, that the result is that happiness is not on the opposite side of the result. I don't know what is going to persuade you to do that. Right. And we are constantly rushing to the next thing, thinking that is going to bring us fulfillment, satisfaction. And really it is. It's just like. What are you doing to cultivate joy through a playful mindset each and every day? You know, and I challenge people this. I when people are like, oh, I had a bad day. I go, no, you didn't. I don't think you had a bad day. According to positive psychology, you had a bad moment and you have that bad moment for 60 seconds. It actually sits in your head for 60 seconds and then potentially goes to your body. But then you get to choose if you want to continue to have that bad moment. So you had that bad moment and then you replayed it over and over and over again. And my friend Desiree taught me this method that I thought was really cool, where you ask yourself with curiosity, not with yearning, but with curiosity, how can it get any better than this? You ask that question to yourself. How can it get any better than this? Oh, my gosh. I woke up this morning um, and I hopped on a, a call with uh, Vermont Sherm. How can it get any better than this? Then we have our really cool call together. How can it get any better than this? I'm going to get to do a talk for a Canadian company pretty soon. How can it get any better than this? Then I'm going to go hang out with my friends that are digital nomads and they're traveling all over the world and I get to hear their stories. How can it get any better than this? I don't know, right? But when you ask that and you build off of the momentum, right, of looking, because what you're telling your brain, because brain works off of patterns, right? Your brain is starting then to look for patterns on how it can actually get better, right? And the more we can actually do stuff like that, right? Do that at work of like, wow, we just hit our highest quarter ever. How can it get any better than this? And you explore that. That's when all of a sudden you start to have more fun in the moment. Instead of waiting for the moment of fun to get there, you have it at that very moment, 
right? And I say this all the time to people. At the end of your life, you don't think of all your accomplishments. You just don't think of all that. You think of your fun, joy, play moments. So what are your fun, joy, play moments? And how are you cultivating more of those each and every day? Because that's what makes life worth living, right? Yeah. Well, fantastic. You've left me with so much good information. And how can it get any better than this, Jeff? I just don't know. I'm going to pursue that throughout the rest of my day. So how can people find out more about you? Where should they go? What should they look for? Sure. So they simply can go to rediscoveryourplay.com, click on the Let's Play button, let's set up a time to talk and figure out how to make work suck less. And then I also make ridiculous videos and i post them on my linkedin instagram tiktok twitter youtube and they're all at the same handle at jeff harry plays so that's at j-e-f-f-h-a-r-r-y-p-l-a-y-s let's please bring more play back to work because work sucks right now and it really doesn't have to i love it well thanks for your time today jeff and for getting us excited about playing and life and at work Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. It's time for you to get noticed, create change, and grow your influence. Don't waste any time. Subscribe to this podcast and help us get the word out by leaving a review.